Welcome to the Game Changes for Good podcast. I'm Wahoo and this is a podcast where I interview notable and innovative game changers whose work has great social impact. In each episode, I will talk to guests who have in some way changed the game in their field of work, inciting impactful social change. All in the hope to understand who they are, why they do what they do, and by the end of the episode, besides learning about the beliefs and experiences that shapes them, we are also able to tease out their strategies, tips, their secret sauce to being a social impact practitioner. So sit back, relax, and let's jump into our episode today. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Giving Hub. Have you ever wondered how to maximize the money you donate to charity? Or if there are any other ways besides giving money that can more effectively help out a charity? Have you ever asked where you can find a charity that is effective in what they do to maximize your contribution? Giving Hub is an online platform to help you manage your charitable giving. You can choose to give to a non-profit organization, a social enterprise, or a charitable project created by volunteers. You can also give in the form of money or volunteer your professional skills to a matching charitable organization. The Giving Hub platform aims to help you give more effectively and to the most impactful organization. Visit the platform to find out how you can do this at www.givinghub.asia. Hello, my fellow listeners. What is up? Uh, pardon me for the sexy voice. I'm having quite a bit of trouble with my throat. This episode of the podcast, we have with us Tato Dr. Hartini Zainuddin. She is a prominent activist who has dedicated nearly three decades of her life to the welfare of marginalized children in Malaysia. She's an activist who co-founded Yayasan Chowkit, formerly known as Yayasan Nur Salam, the first 24-hour, seven-days, one-stop child crisis center in the country. The center is dedicated to providing marginalized and displaced children with shelter. She has worked as a consultant and a member of several humanitarian and refugee-based organizations. She has also been involved in law and policy reforms as well as training on children's issues. Her work includes being a member of the Ministry of Women, Family and Communities Development's National Advisory Council on the Welfare and Protection of Children. She is also a part of various national task forces, including child protection policy training, stateless children and the Malaysian adoption system. Dr. Hartini currently sits as a council member of the National Recovery Council looking into food security and child protection issues within marginalized communities in Malaysia. She was the Asia School of Business fundraising consultant as well as with UNICEF as a partnership and philanthropic consultant. In 2021, she received the Tetlas Influence Award. The award brings together the region's most innovative changemakers, industry titans, and powerful individuals who are shaping the region through positive impact. All in all, I know her to be the kindest person I've ever met. So, if you're ready, let's dive in into the story of Dato Dr. Hatini Zainuddin in this episode of the Game Changers for Good podcast. Enjoy! This is part one of a three-part interview. You can find part two and part three from our podcast webpage. And you can also find a full-length episode combining part one, two, and three in our podcast webpage as well. 
Welcome to the Game Changers for Good podcast. Thank you for having mm-hmm. me. Thank you for coming. Um, I think your schedule is, I mean, it's so tight, it's so busy. It's very hard to find time to sit down with you. So I'm very, very glad that you can make time and be here. <laughs> We're going to start with um, this elephant in the room. Something happened this morning. Can you tell us what happened this morning? Why you're so happy now? So my daughter, Zara, who is 14, just got her passport approved today. So she actually had a passport in her and I made her take a photo. After 14 years, it's been quite a journey. It took five years to get her birth certificate, six years to get a citizenship, three years to get a passport. So it's, yeah, it's been crazy. For people who don't know the background. Yeah, okay. Um, can you tell us why is it that it, takes, it took so long? So, so Zara was, was, I get to say was now. <laughs> um, Zara was, was stateless. Um, she's one of the many, many children in Malaysia, through no fault of theirs, was rendered stateless because of situations. In Zara's case, um, she was a foundling. I found her at two and a half years old. Um, she's actually a, a victim of baby selling. Um, so she was bought and sold twice before she was three months old. And I actually was the person who had to buy her back. Um, and it's been a journey because it was a private adoption. Welfare didn't want to help with the application for her birth certificate, which is usually the first thing you get when you're born. But because, you know, she was foundling, there's a police report, didn't know where she was born. I couldn't find um, any witnesses to say where she was born. It was so difficult to get a birth cert. The Home Minister at that time, who was Dr. Sri Hishamuddin, gave permission to Zara and 21 other children to get their birth certificates after waiting a while five years, um, you know, that we had to go to court, you know, so I could get guardianship so that, you know, I could get permission to do all these document applications. Yeah. And then her citizenship application took six years, like I said. Then you think, you know, it's over in 2019 and it's not because you still have to apply for her passport, for her IC, etc. and stuff. And it was, it was complicated. There were just so many obstacles and hurdles we had to jump through and it was very painful. But I you know, looking back, we're here and she got it. And it's like the best feeling in the world, just watching your daughter, like, just happy. And she's like, I'm legit now. And I'm like, yeah, you're legit. And she's like, get to travel. I'm like, yeah, we get to travel. Definitely worth celebrating, right? Yeah. I mean, it took so many years of work. Yeah. It took so many years. Yeah. And is that the normal process for a child in that situation? Right now? Yeah. It's not a normal process for a child if you can prove citizenship. It is a normal process if you can't prove citizenship. And I know people who've waited 30, 40, 50 years, yeah, and they still haven't got their citizenship. So on one, I'm celebrating because it's my daughter. On the other hand, as an activist, you just... No, I've got three more kids to do this for, yeah? So I was just I was just tweeting just now. I was like, I think I'm going to be 100 plus if each child takes 14 years to, oh. you know, get a passport. I'm like, oh my God. It's, it's not unfathomable, right? I mean, everybody says, oh, you do what you can. And I'm like, you do what you can. It's not good enough. You mentioned in passing that, oh, you have three more child to do this. How you come to adopt this uh-huh. kids and... Uh-huh. I'm pretty sure it's not in an easy decision. There are so many kids out there. Yeah. They are all, you know, in the same kind of uh, yeah. dilemma. How did you come to meet Sarah? those that you have adopted and, and why that yeah. decision? And- you know what? It, it isn't like I planned it. It isn't like I go out and say, okay, you know, I'm going to adopt this child or this child. It no? just sort of, no, <laughs> <laughs> no. It's sort of an organic thing that happens because of circumstances. So a child comes and is abandoned at our center and I can't get him adopted so I adopt him you know a child that I'm supposed to pick up because 
I thought nobody wanted her and I wanted to make sure she was safe. I went to pick up and I ended up adopting her. Kid, you know, whose grandparents died and whose parents died needs help. And so I ended up adopting him. And I didn't plan. Like, everybody's like, oh, how do you choose? You got so many. I didn't choose. They sort of, the circumstances, the universe, God, whatever you want to call it, just sort of, the kids chose me. It really, it was not me at all. I really have no say in this. It just sort of happened and it was just an instinct. They sort of chose me, I guess, so circumstances. As a child activist, mm. right, and being in this field and meeting so many different people and you have to deal with so many different cases, mm. uh, helping children, mm. you know, with uh, so diverse a background. I'm pretty sure people are still asking this question, mm. right? How do you think about bringing them into your life? In, in the process of trying to solve a problem for these children, yeah. right? That seems to be a very, very daunting kind of challenge and decision to say there is this, these cases, mm. well, in your words, children choose you mm. based on the circumstances. situation, circumstances. Yeah. But it's still a difficult decision to make. And I feel like a lot of people... Uh, you know, might, might want to ask you, wondering, yeah, how do you make that decision that you, if you bring this child into your life, yeah. adopt them, right? Yeah. You know, it's for a lifetime. Yeah. Uh, that's a different definition of bringing your work home. I, the lines get blurred. I was just saying this as well. It's like my lines get blurred, right? I mean, you, first of all, I'm a single mom, right? So I don't have partner to consult with. Second of all, I make the decisions and then I tell my mother and the rest of my family. So, so they sort of sometimes find out from the newspaper because I don't see. Or, <laughs> you know, I'm like, oh yeah, by the by and by, you know, I'm adopting this four-year-old. My mother's like, we don't have space in the house. And I'm like, she can sleep on my bed for a while or she sleeps with Zara or something. Yeah, that, you, you know what? My mom's really cool about it because it's like, okay, we need to make room. My siblings are like, are you sure? And I'm like, yep. Everybody just pitches in. So it, it's nice to, to have that family support, even though I think they shake my head and think I'm completely mad. I actually balance out what needs to happen. And I sort of, because I've been doing this work for so long, sort of balance out the process with what I can and cannot do and what my resources are. And it's not a matter of can I do it, but how am I going to do it? And the how am I going to do it is not as daunting because I don't think one year in advance. I just think what needs to happen next. And I think because of circumstances, I never do case management social work. I mean, I think my, my social workers will be horrified to hear I don't do case management. But I don't. I just take the next step. Like what needs to happen? I know I've played out the scenarios because I've done this so many times. And it, so the next step is something that's sort of automatic. You can't find... Option A, that works. You can't find adoptive parents. You can't find, there's no proper foster family in case. You know what's going to happen if they're in RKKs. You know what's going to happen if you leave them. You know what's happening if you don't uh, leave them. And, and at the end of the day, you know, I've gone through all the different scenarios and who is the best person to take care of this child. And sometimes the answer is me. Sometimes it's not. But it's not like I look at the child and say, oh, you know, okay, this child looks like this mine. That's not how it works. It's just, I sort of, I'm sort of clinical about that. But when I make the decision, that's, it's my decision, nobody else's. And you just do what you can. You just make room, as my mother says, make room. I think that's also one of the reasons why a lot of people find you so unique because of the amount of compassion that you have. Uh The way you look at what you do, that is not 
completely separate from your life. You know, some people yeah. when they when they work, there's a separate part of their personal yeah. life and the work life, and you know, there there is a balance yeah. to be played. But yeah. for someone who looks at everything as a whole, passion that you have, yeah. the compassion that you have, really, I think that's why a lot of people look up to you. I, I think some people call it compassion. Some people call it craziness. I like to look at it as just craziness, crazily. <gasps> I am empathetic, for sure. And I'm definitely trying to put myself in someone else's shoes. But it's usually everybody, I think what makes it different is because I try to put myself in the child's shoes and what they see. And it is totally scary. And even then, you you don't really know and you can't really predict how the child's going to behave. Like, you know, I've known Zara since, you know, she was a baby. And her reaction today, you didn't realize how much it meant to her. She, you know, she hardly talks, but when she does, and she was like, I'm legit. And I'm like... Yeah, you're legit. She's like, I can travel now. I was like, yeah, this is it. No more, no more obstacles, mm. no more hurdles. This was it. And she's like, oh. you could just see it, you know? Mm. And you don't, you don't know how a child feels. And I think, and maybe because I'm so childish, I tend to be childlike, try to put myself in the child's shoes and try to see things from their point of view. And their point of view is very different from adults. And I think because of that and because I am an adult and I am sort of, believe it or not, clinical in terms of looking at the options because we've had to do this over and over again quite fast for me to make, up, make my decision when in these kind of circumstances. So it's, yeah. This trait of being childlike. Yeah. I, I, I do want to call it, I do want to differentiate uh, between being childlike and being childish. Yeah. Because being childlike <laughs> is a quality that we actually, we see in a lot of spiritual uh, oh, gurus and, okay. and spiritual leaders because they eventually, when they were sort of gaining an enlightenment, they become very, um, very childlike in a manner that they see the world as a very interesting and wondrous and, mm. you know, just playful mm. kind of place. Mm. And for me, that's a very good quality to have. Mm. The attitude of not taking things too seriously because life mm. is stressful, right? Mm. I mean, the work that sometimes mm. that you do and you mm. know, the work that we do can be very stressful, but the ability to see things with curiosity, mm. with playfulness, it's a very important quality to have. And I'm, I'm very glad that you bring that. You know, when I interact with you and when I see you interact with other people, it's always that playfulness, you know, very curious. Uh, I have my dark side or the, not being a, not that being an adult is dark, but I have <laughs> this, you know, serious side as, do, yeah. as well. And, you know, you see so many horrible, horrible, horrible things, right? I think the human spirit and what we need um, to move forward in very difficult situations is imagination and is hope and the what ifs and the what ifs give rise to hope when everybody says why do you work with children and I say I work with children because they are room for hopefulness and imagination and play and creativity which I think makes up the human spirit and that's why it's so important not to break the human spirit in a child especially because you break the person I think that personally has been what's been keep kept me going that curiosity or playfulness or the childishness whatever you want to call it and the fact is that I like being around children and that I really like being around them and I love being able to play and not have an excuse to be playful and creative and imaginative although I cannot draw I cannot paint I cannot do all that kind of stuff but I like kids I genuinely do and because I think I had such a wonderful childhood growing up I think all kids should have that and I think if you have that then there's then nothing is impossible because you can imagine and dream of possible 
possibilities. And for so many children that I work with, especially, in fact, all the children that I work with, the marginalized, they need that hope, that sense of possibilities of being doing whatever they want if they do work hard, if they do this. And that nothing comes easy for them, but they are not shaped by their circumstances, so they can overcome. That's what I think. If childlikeness comes with creativity and imagination, then yes, I embrace it totally, 100%. If we can talk about your childhood, about your parents mm. and how they influence you. So my father came from a very, very poor family. He was born in Johor Bahru, um, had 14 brothers and sisters, was number five in the family, went the oldest son. And this played a lot because the, with that came a lot of responsibilities because he's the son, right? And, you know, and the whole family moved to Pekan, Pahang, where my dad sold Malay cakes and stuff before he went to school. And that proverbial um, walk to school was very much a part of my dad's life. His mother was in the kitchen all the time and cooking and being your traditional Malay wife, you know, who ate last. My grandfather and my father ate first because they were the men in the house and everybody had to share. My dad knew he had responsibilities. He wanted to go to English school, but the English school at that time was in Johor Bahru and he was in Pekan. So they, he and my grandfather walked two weeks, um, got on the back of a lorry so that he could enroll in the school um, in Johor Bahru and he was classmates with Tunusa and all that. So they all mm. know each other for a long time. But the point is that they, if you wanted to make something of yourself, you went to an English medium school and that's what my father did. So he became a civil servant and, you know, worked his way up, etc. On the other hand, there's my mother, who's Chinese, like 100% tier two Chinese, came from a family where... You know, my great-grandfather was the Capitan of Moa, also from Johor. I'm also born in Johor, who came from this middle-class family with seven brothers and sisters, was the favorite daughter, you know, my grandfather doted on her, had different dreams and ambitions. And then, you know, by chance, my father was a customs officer, civil servant, working and covering Moa, and then was staying at the rest house, saw my mother walking down the street because... My grandparents' house was right next to the old Moa rest house on Jalan Osman. Fell in love with her, love at first sight. That's what my mother said. <laughs> my father says my mother saw him driving this nice car <laughs> and chased after him. Right. Um, so the, the stories there differ. But they basically, do. they fell in love. And, and, you know, we're talking about the 1960s here, where, you know, interracial marriages were not exactly the norm, right? My grandfather, my mother's side, actually was horrified and said, no, you cannot marry him. So my father packed, my mother packed her bags and moved out and left and married my father, came back a year later with me. Um, apparently I was very cute. My grandfather's heart melted. So I'm the first <laughs> grandchild on my father's side. Okay. But we come from that background, right? So my father always taught me to understand what it's like being poor. And, you know, we weren't rich growing up. We were, you know, civil servants pay. My mother was, you know, a housewife taking care of the kids. Um, but we grew up with a sense of, from my father's side, of responsibility. You know, he used to wash toilets in the British Army barracks, right, to make extra money. And he's so queer. I mean, people see him and, you know, some people who are older obviously know who he was in Pagan because he was the one, he was the boy who's so queer who did well in school, right? And then and, um, and then my mother was like, you know, they had a piano in the house. So it was very different. And my mother couldn't really speak Malay. She says she can, but she can't. And my father couldn't speak Chinese. So they spoke in English in the house. And, and we grew up with this, with this whole mentality of, you know, discussing topics at the dinner table, you know, having a love for food because both my parents are foodies, you know, trying.
trying out different food, growing up in, in families that were very, not my mother's side so much, well, not my father's side so much, but my mother's side, definitely in loads of interracial marriages and doing stuff. So we had this celebration of different uh, race. So we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate Raya, we celebrate Chinese New Year. We know all the customs, we know all the things. My mother, my mother insisted my father taught us how to pray. Um, my father told us, you know, about certain things about duty and obligations and nation building and standing up as a woman. I, I swear my father doesn't even know he was a feminist, but he was. He was like, if a man doesn't agree with you and you just think you don't need to marry him, he can go fly kites. That's my father's favorite word. You don't need a man to make you whole. You don't. This is my father, right? My mother, on the other hand, was like, love children, you know, love to cook, was very traditional in some ways, but very not, yeah, because you know, sure, my father disowned her and she packed her bags and moved out, right? At, at 22, yeah? I'm at 22, I'm like, I'm still in college, no! <laughs> so, you know, that sense of rebelliousness, um, that sense of what is doing what's right for you, it definitely came from both my parents. The, the idea of knowing the stark difference between being middle class, which we were, and being poor, which my father was, we know. So the creative and imagination came from reading books. That one, that one was maybe my father too, but you know, the first growing up book I read was Charles Dickens and that was my dad's copy but the growing up part the imagination the creation definitely came from books and that was just because I love to read so I've got like 50 books I haven't read and 20 books I've sort of read two pages of I think also my, my mother was very strict with me because I was so playful right right yeah I, I want to hear about what's their parenting style like oh. also, also because you know I have young kids and I my father to... was cool my mother was not so cool uh, my mother's the disciplinarian so and I am the one who with my creativity and imagination always got into trouble. <laughs> so I was a scientist. I cut off all her roses in the garden. Um, I was I was a chef and I almost burnt her kitchen down. <laughs> I was a CIA agent. I cut the telephone cord and so they had no, no phone calls for three days. The spy and then I was trying to fix the thing and I put like band-aid plaster on and then the op telephone operator came over three days later goes... I do wrong, but you know, like that was me. I was an acrobat one, and I pulled the light fixture down from the ceiling as my parents walked in through the door. So my mother used to tell us when I when I was older that she used to sit outside the house crying because she never knew what I was going to do next, and I was always going to get into trouble. I, you know, so I was not. I was very overactive um, with this crazy imagination, and I was always doing that and didn't matter if I got into trouble I'd still do it so your 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 dad was encouraging my dad wasn't encouraging but he was definitely not discouraging I see so I would after getting yelled at and kind of rotan by my mother and I got rotan a lot yeah almost every day I would sit outside the house waiting for my father to come back and there was this cartoon shows me much older than you called wait till your father gets home and there's a song. Oh, so anyway, it goes, wait till your father gets, until your father gets, wait till your father gets home. Yeah, that was the song I used to sing to myself while waiting outside the gates. I'd be running out the house because I knew I was going to get rid of I'd sit outside till my father came home. Then when my father came home, because my mother would run out to tell him, to tell him what I did, mm. I would run behind my father because I knew I was going to get rotan again. And my father would like literally protect me because like That's going around in circles. And like, yeah, I was like, I need a it, <laughs> You know, and yeah, so the drama definitely was from those circumstances. And okay. I think a lot of what shaped me growing up about finding, trying to overcome hurdles was me trying to escape from my mother's rotan right. all, all the time. So trying to like think of different scenarios of how I could not get rotan 
but I always got it done anyway. But yeah, so, so it was a lot of like trying to negotiate, you know, with my mother, with my father, with my father was not easy. I'm not saying, but because I think I was the oldest and because he had me a couple of years more than my sister. So I, I think I, I had a little more time with him. So he was very like protective, you know, mm. so he was like, like, don't hit my daughter. <laughs> so in, in hindsight, do you think it's uh, really beneficial to have these two different characters as parents? Yes, I do. I think the fact that they were of different race, of different social background, of different experiences definitely shaped who I was. Definitely. Mm. And my experiences with both of them shaped who I am. Mm. So, yeah. So I get ice cream if I did something wrong for my father. I get rotan if I did something wrong by my mother. <laughs> this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Giving Hub. Have you ever wondered how to maximize the money you donate to charity? Or if there are any other ways besides giving money that can more effectively help out a charity? Have you ever asked where you can find a charity that is effective in what they do to maximize your contribution? Giving Hub is an online platform to help you manage your charitable giving. You can choose to give to a non-profit organization, a social enterprise, or a charitable project created by volunteers. You can also give in the form of money or volunteer your professional skills to a matching charitable organization. The Giving Hub platform aims to help you give more effectively and to the most impactful organization. Visit the platform to find out how you can do this at www.givinghub.asia.